0: Hello and welcome to Happy Homes, the podcast that aims to make you feel better about where you live with a little bit of help from science. Now, to the future. I know, I know, right now it's marginally terrifying whether you're worrying about what's going to happen next week or where the hell we're all going to be at to perish the thought Christmas. But if there's one thing you can gain some control over right now is how to future-proof your home. So with me to talk about just that is Colin Lacey, CEO of Brick by Brick, and designer Mark Biggestack, Mark and May. Warning, Mark was on location for this episode, so there's a bit of ambient noise in the background. Colm, Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Hi, guys.
0: So, Colm, I'm going to come to you first. You spend some of your time creating affordable social housing that's also future forward. What kinds of things do you have to consider when you're building new homes that are going to stand the test of time?
2: Just going from the start of that process... By the name of the company, as you would imagine, we tend to use very robust materials, use a lot of brick, which has obviously stood the test of time with regards to all the environmental conditions that's been thrown at it to date, and we expect will be thrown at it in the future. Um, So, you know, that suggests really how we approach the overall materiality process of what we put into our home. So using what we call self-finished materials, robust materials that are tried and tested, uh, materials that people can understand and, and recognize as being solid and, and robust is, is really important for us in in the external elements of our homes. In terms of how we put together the internal design of our homes, space is increasingly important. As your life um, progresses and you get extra bits and pieces of family or friends or whatever coming live with you, um, you need to be able to use the spaces in your home differently. So, For example, all of our homes are lifetime homes compliant, which means they can change and adapt with you as your circumstances adapt. Indeed, if you become less able or disabled as time goes on, they're also able to adapt with you in that way. More importantly, they're large enough and comfortable enough to spend a lot of time in. Um, I think at the moment we're all acutely aware of our own individual domestic circumstances and having some space. move around in and different rooms to go into and some privacy and some you know acoustic privacy and all sorts of other things to be able to work and live is really important the other thing that's that's key for us in that is external space and all of our homes have private amenity external space be it a a balcony that you can actually sit on and grow things on and be in rather than just a a tiny space outside a window or an external garden where similarly you can sort of get outside and, and experience a, a bit of fresh air. And then increasingly, we're thinking about now, over time, how we make our homes far more environmentally sustainable as well. So we're working zero carbon into our development programme, starting to think about what we call the, the, the one planet living principles, which is not just what the homes are made out of and how they're sustainable in their technical elements or design elements, but also how they fit into wider communities. So looking at social sustainability, economic sustainability, how when they're being created, they can increase um, local jobs and local engagement in the development process. So I think it's it's a really huge question, actually. How do we build homes which are going to be suitable both now and into the future?
0: So today, when people have been building properties, what have been some of the features that have dated them or made sure that they won't stand the test of time?
2: For me, I think probably the biggest element of that is space. Over time, in fact, back to the 60s when we had the Parker-Morris standards, as they were called, these were pretty generous standards with regards to um, um, internal space standards in homes. So you'll probably recognize yourself that some older council properties built in the 60s, for example, tend to really be quite large um, by modern standards. And that's because they were transferring from a more Victorian model of development where there was lots of back-to-back homes, which were very small, and um, fitting into a, a standard streetscape. And then, of course, the, the great ambition of the 60s was to create these communities in the sky. And part of that was having access to light and having a lot more space within the homes to be able to live. So... That became eroded a little bit as time went on into the 70s and particularly the 80s when those space standards started to come down a little bit again. And you'll sort of recognise the Barrett's box, as it was called, of the 80s, which was a particularly sort of mean house style, let's say. No reflection on Barrett's, by the way. It's just a, yeah, just a phrase. But um, it was a small box, two up, two down type, small windows, you know, cellular rooms, um, a different kind of living style. So over time and in the last 20 years, that's changed again and there's been some fairly clear and stringent space standards put in place in London, um, encapsulated in what's called the London Housing Design Guide Standards, which are quite generous actually with regards to um, the, the homes that are created and the amount of space within them. So just having the right amount of space and the right access to light in particular and air in the homes is is one of the things that... Um, has been important over time with regards to making sure the homes are, are designed correctly and um, smaller properties are feel very dated now, I think. The other is materials. So there was a scourge again in the 70s and 80s of the use of pretty poor quality materials like PVC or different cladding materials, which just simply haven't stood the test of time with regards to the weather or environment. Or taste, in fact, the consumer taste, you know, they're they're not valued particularly highly nowadays. So I think they're probably two of the the key areas where properties are able to be dated simply by the look of them or the feel of them from the inside.
0: Mark, do you have anything to add on that? Because I know when we discussed this, you were talking to me about things like the kinds of cupboards people sometimes select and the handles they uh, choose for them and how easy it is to replace them or not as the years go on.
1: This whole topic to me is a, is a great example of where future proofing is all about design and it's all about putting the effort in to explore the options before you go ahead and do. And I think, you know, in this in this world where everyone's keen to do everything sort of yesterday, um, that's often the hardest thing is, is getting people just to take breath. Uh, and really think about what their needs are and think about the key steps to create a, an environment you're going to enjoy living in and have the flexibility to to develop over time in line with your needs and then potentially in line with, with other people's needs either in your family or sort of next step or everything that touches you in an experiential way which is where a lot of my experience comes from it all matters and it's very easy to sort of think about one aspect of that and forget the others and then wonder why your environment doesn't satisfy you for very long. Style is a particularly tricky one you know if you think about when you are buying things fitting out your home putting storage into homes is a great example is what do you do with regard to the way you style it there's a danger that if you become too fashion fixed with what you put into your home and the sort of permanency of your home, that that will fade over time. You know, it's a very different um, experience, the clothes you wear and what you choose to wear on a daily basis, because you can change it, because you can alter it, you can twist it around very easily. Once you start to build things permanently into your house, actually doing things with them and changing that is very much harder. My sort of approach would always be to put quality into the structure of your home, put great detail into the structure of your home and the things you put permanently in um, and then allow your personal style to be expressed through things that you can change more easily, be that. Um, obviously, the easy things sort of you know, paint, uh, wallpaper, furnishings and so on, decorative objects. But also think about, yeah, you can change handles on cupboard doors, you can change details more easily that are, that are attached um, as a, sort of the last fix, as they say. But the structure of things, if you build too much into that that's too particular, too unique, too expressive. The danger is you're going to fall out of love with it.
0: Mm. Have you got any examples of things that people do routinely wrong? Is there anything that people think, oh, it's, it'll be easy to change that in 10 years and then it really isn't?
1: One of my big bugbears around people designing their homes is is lighting, yet integrating light that's efficient, that's got a a humanity to it so it isn't stark, putting in the right places to allow you not to, you know, need to have a floodlit home just to get around takes a lot of forethought. I did a lot of work in bathrooms in my past life and uh, the number of times that I'd see a beautiful bathroom with the best marble and the best fixtures and so on, and they just hadn't thought about the lighting. And you ended up with you know, lights in a bad location where you're squinting into the mirror because you've got a reflection off the surfaces uh, back into that mirror, into your eyes, and you really can't see what you're actually trying to do or the experience in the shower or the bath really isn't what you wanted to do because the lights just aren't right or aren't in the right place or you're lying in the bath staring up at a down blinding you because it's the only light in the bathroom. You know, stuff like that that is about really thinking about your five senses as you design your home so that you're designing in
2: a great experience that you can live with for a long time.
0: Colm, have you got any examples of terrible faux pas that people make?
2: I would agree with lighting, but I'd probably focus on natural light, actually. I think um, there was a real tendency for people to feel that they would get more space in their home by creating more rooms, you know, more cellular rooms. And maybe they need a study or maybe they need an extra kids' room or whatever, and they chop and change the building to such an extent that the way the light, natural light, flows through the building is completely um, compromised. So for for me, natural light and just experiencing daylight coming through your house um, and the changing time of the day is is really really important. And people can tend to forget that in a in a race to get more space, if you like, or a perception of more space. The other thing, which personally I'm very acutely aware of at the moment, is. Not considering the way we live now in what our, in what our homes are doing. So I live in a in a Victorian terrace, and basically I can get good Wi Fi in about two rooms of this house, and that's purely because of the location of where the where the Wi Fi router is and where the where the connection comes in. And um, you know, people just don't consider these things. They you know, Wi Fi is something that you use all day, every day, all the time. And yet we live in these big boxes where, you know, you're jamming yourself into a corner of it in order to be able to get access to it. And equally, it's one of those things that is really difficult to change. You know, you have to get the virgin man out or whatever it is and run his cable somewhere else and you have to probably bring it through a wall. And so that kind of, I suppose, technology infrastructure or let's call it modern infrastructure of life doesn't seem to have been worked fully into a lot of home designs yet is what I'd say.
0: It seems as though the technology obviously came after the design of many homes and then we've kind of shoved it into spaces, haven't we? But then we haven't thought practically about how to build it in from the, from the beginning. So actually building on that, in terms of smart homes, making a home suitable for the future with technology, what's the essential kit for a future-proof smart home?
1: You really have to think about the infrastructure you put in very early to get your smart home doing what you wanted to do. And by that, I mean you've got to do a lot of a lot of wiring because even though we you know wi-fi is great and i'll come on to sort of electromagnetic stuff a little bit later i hope but you do need to distribute your network around your home so you can have a, a really good smart home you have to think about where you're going to put sensors you know smart homes depend on sensing stuff and responding to what you're doing moving around the house especially if you're thinking about inclusivity, looking after elderly relatives and wanting to to have things that help them. You really want to build it in. Otherwise, what you're going to end up with is extension leads from here to here, plugged in over there with a sensor that you've got to run a cable across the wall to have that in the right place. You know, and it's simple things like absolute sure, you know, door locks are going to become smart. And, you know, we all want to walk up to our door with our hands full and just turn around and bump it with your bum and the door opens because it's it knows who you are well to do that you need to put power to your door you need to have power next to your door you need to have allowed for that otherwise yeah you can have a battery pad one but then you'll be forever forgetting to recharge it and having to go let's run out on a holiday and it's stuff like that that just needs you to step back and say right okay how much of a smart home do i want and then build in the infrastructure so that it's it's a delightful experience
0: Mm, that makes perfect sense, Colin. What do you think about that? What do you consider when you know you're making houses?
2: One of the chief considerations with that is is who your client is it It's um a little bit easier when you know you're you're working on a one off basis and you're working with somebody to create a home and design what the um the infrastructure of that home should be and design it specifically for their needs we We tend to make a lot of homes we do about five hundred a year. Um, for different people and who are of different levels of tech savviness. So a real challenge for us is in teaching people how to use their homes. A really good example is most homes now are so well insulated that they would typically need to have some form of mechanical ventilation. And it's called mechanical heat recovery ventilation. And this is an always on system, you know, which um, shouldn't make any noise, but you have you absolutely have to keep it on. And it ventilates your house, you know, You so you don't ventilate your house in the way of opening the doors or, you know, you burn your toast and you open all the doors or it's really hot and whatever. Now, people just do not understand this. You know, It's it's a really hard thing to get across to people. If you think about it, people understand homes and their domestic environment based on where they grew up and their parents and what their friends tell them and what their dad tells them about how to fix things and whatever. So there's actually been quite a con- quantum leap in terms of um, the, the technology that's in homes in the last five or 10 years or so. And people just haven't really kept up with it. So we're constantly having to remind people how to use these systems. And we do kind of quite detailed handover processes to explain to people how they should be used and the reasons for these systems being in place and what's good about them and what's, what you absolutely mustn't do. But I would say most of the times we're called out afterwards to help fix things, it's because there's been a bit of a a misunderstanding about exactly how to use that system. Now, this is going to get more and more challenging, I think, as time goes on. So increasingly with the whole zero carbon agenda, we're starting, for example, to put in air source heat pumps, which is a way of distributing heat from the ambient temperature of the air, which involves units usually in gardens or in roofs which people need to understand, you know, it's it's the same as your base level of understanding of something like a boiler. So I think one of the big challenges for us will be explaining to people how just, just even the most base level of smart home works when their understanding of it is that there's nothing really that moves or performs in the walls of their buildings.
0: Yeah, it sounds a bit like when we first had air conditioning in cars and people used to keep winding the windows down, didn't they? I mean, I still do that probably sometimes and completely forget. And I don't drive. That's why I do it. I don't use it enough. But it also, maybe it sounds as though we don't quite have the information out in the public domain yet, would you say? Do you think there's not a good enough conversation going on about how to live in a smart home?
2: Yeah. And I suppose the, you, you buy, how many homes do you buy a year? Maybe two or three tops, you know? So there's At each point that you touch the new home purchase process, let's say, um, you know, things have moved on quite drastically. So it's really hard to, to, A, it's hard to bring people up to speed because it's not something that they do every day anyway. But B, the technology moves on so quickly. You know, whatever we teach now will probably be redundant in X year's time, you know. And in fact... There's a bit of a movement now towards moving away where possible from mechanical ventilation systems and back to more natural ventilation systems because it's more environmentally aware. So, um, yeah, it's a hard one. I suppose the the best we can do really is have a really decent handover process for people who are purchasing whatever home. The bigger challenge is when we're selling secondhand homes. You know, if you're buying on the secondhand market via Rightmove a smart home from someone, how much time are you really going to have? for that person to be able to teach you how to work that home properly. I mean, even things like PV panels or solar panels on the roof, you're not going to have very much time at all from that seller to, for them to teach you how that works or how best to use it. So, yeah, it, it might be an issue of prevalence and it just needs to be more talked about in society or it, um, it may be an issue of handover between individuals that, that could be done a little bit better perhaps.
0: Mark, what's on the horizon in terms of smart homes? You know, what's still science fiction and what things do you think we're going to see in the next, say, 10 years?
1: Well, I mean, 10 years, I think, you know, voice, voice control is going to be prevalent. The, the, the acceleration of that is, is, is massive. So I think the next few years will see us basically being able to control most of the features of our home with our voices. And hopefully without having to say, you know, Google, Siri, et cetera. That's the next big step is the sort of what they call natural speaking control, um, where you don't suddenly have to say these funny words and it'll just pick up the context of what you're saying and and you'll interact with your home. So that's absolutely science fact. You know, that's going to come through. And then just the integration of that technology into products is it's almost universal now, you know, and the cost of that is going to continue to tumble down, you know, so every domestic appliance you buy will have it installed. And then probably there'll be, you know, the manufacturers are already getting quite smart. They'll put it in there and then you'll pay to activate it if you haven't paid at the beginning of the purchase process because that's just uh, it's one of those features that at the moment people are sort of dubious about having to pay for. And where does that go? Well, it allows us to start accessing more efficient routines for running your your home you know so you can choose to run your washing machine when electricity demand is low because now you can control it you can synchronize things you know you can have what we will absolutely definitely see is a lot more uh, integration of technology that's that's about safety in the home You know, the days of having separate smoke detectors, CO detectors, you know, movement sensors, alarm systems, all as separate things are going to disappear, I think, and we'll have integrated systems. That's got some great opportunities in it for, you know, caring for elderly people with the ability to sense things like fall in the home, sense lack of movement in bathrooms. And then send out alerts to members of your family. All of that is absolutely present and is going to come and is going to, you know, the cost of it is already coming down rapidly. Things are changing fast, you know, and if we get um, totally paranoid about uh, things like COVID and hygiene and contact and so on, then that will again accelerate technology and we'll see these things um, changing very rapidly. The problem with it, of course, is in new home development, you can integrate these things nicely. It's it's what you do with the existing housing stock and how you make it easy for people to upgrade their existing properties so that this is a, a, a great experience wherever you happen to live.
0: Colin, what do you think about this? What have you seen at Brick by Brick in terms of developments in technology and things that have already been installed in houses or are going to be installed in the coming years?
2: I, th- I think that was a really good summary there. I suppose what I'd add to it is, the sustainability agenda you know w- what is happening to homes just to deal with environmental change and that's everything from the performance systems uh, i've just talked about in terms of insulation and ventilation energy generation from whether it be solar panels or air source heat pumps or whatever but also sort of more touchy feely things like genuinely incorporating space for home food growing and solar gain you know in terms of aspect and size of windows etc to be able to make and um, the building sort of have to perform less. And I think applying that to a, to a wider scale, I hope what we'll see happening is changes to people's perception of things like embodied carbon. I mean, we, in my view, we really shouldn't be demolishing anything anymore. You know, there's an awful lot of energy and time and effort and money has gone into building what's already there and we should be able in this day and age to retrofit things into something which performs perfectly well. So. I would hope that the days of demolishing entire kind of house, housing estates and replacing them with something that's only a, a tiny bit larger would would be gone, uh, and that instead we'd be looking at stitching in new developments in, into what's already there. I think the the other thing about technology is it, it and it sort of touches Nikki on your your earlier point about this societal discussion of it is it can be quite scary for for some people this idea of isolated technology, and in particular over the last six months or so when people have been forced to be isolated from one another. I remember going around a a particular sort of cities exhibit, which was run by a technology firm, I won't say who it is, but it was effectively you know, demonstrating all of these home technologies and how they could be applied in the home and it it ended up in this kind of, uh, what's the best way to describe it, almost like a, a presentation of this new home in action, you know, so... X, Y and Z in their high rise block in um, in New York was able to, you know, basically never leave their couch and have stuff delivered. And they never had to interact with another human being or walk down to the street ever again. You know, it was J.G. Ballard made real. And, um, you know, that's really scary. And the more that that starts to happen with individual domestic premises and equally, the more it starts to happen to the high street. You know, we've heard Policy announcements recently were high streets could potentially turn more residential and less sort of employment or less for use by people to congregate or, or interact with each other commercially or go out or have a good time or whatever it might be. You know, the more we pull away these moments of interaction in cities, it's a it's a it's quite a dangerous thing. I think. So what I would hope is that in future these home technologies are things that help homes to perform better, A, but also encourage people to interact in a more safe way rather than make isolation easier.
0: Absolutely, because I mean, that's been an ongoing discussion about the state of video conferencing and the internet and smartphones and all the rest of it, hasn't it? And obviously, we've heavily relied on those technologies during COVID, but what we've missed is other people. So if we're to become more isolated, we're going to lose something as as a humanity, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. Let's just talk a little bit about COVID. Mark, you mentioned a few things there, such as the tap, you know, automated taps. What do you think is going to change the result if we are going to have ongoing pandemics?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, it's such a huge thing, isn't it? You know, in the context of this discussion, you know, how do we prepare? How do we future-proof ourselves for it? You know, I I think there's a lot going to happen in terms of fear and mistrust. And, you know, I think that's, that's a shame. That's a real shame. So I think we as you know, designers, creatives. We have to think about how can we protect the the great things about society, which are the community and social interaction, and so on, by using design and to you know remove some of the risk and re- reduce the distrust that people will now feel about meeting other people and doing things with other people, and and that side of it. You know, so I can imagine that in social spaces, there's going to be a rise in things like local extraction systems, you know, how do you prevent the, the, the spread of contagion? You know, I, I was thinking the other day about this smoking in airports, which they still do in some foreign foreign countries. I mean, I was in India and, you know, you walk through the airport and every 500 metres there's a, a glass box with a heavy extraction system and people inside it smoking. Well, in a way, that's sort of, that's allowing you to socialise whilst you are breathing out something that's, to- that's toxic well, that's, that's exactly what we're facing now. So are we gonna get into a situation where pubs have positive extraction? So actually when you're breathing out, you know, you're, you're not actually able to contaminate someone else with your breath. Okay, contact is no whole other issue about, you know, physical contact. But I can see things like that be changing, you know, the way we think about ventilation um, and mass ventilation and local ventilation. I can see that being an area that, that starts to receive some attention.
0: Mm. And Colin, what would you say to that? I mean, are people asking you questions about how to future-proof houses against COVID? Is it a discussion that's going on?
2: Um, not yet. Not yet. But but I think it will it will come. You know, people are asking us questions about environmental sustainability. You know, there's an an expectation now on first-time buyers that what they buy is sustainable and they they value that. They ask those questions. We it, it tends to be younger people again who are first time buyers who are asking that and we've never really been asked before you know it's not something that people have valued or wanted to pay more for i think for us with covid what we're starting to see is much more of a demand for storage you know um as people now will sort of almost expect it to have a a bike or a electric scooter or something like that that has to go somewhere in the home and it, rather than just clogging up the hall so you know, bike stores, decent bike stores that people actually want to use. How do you store things like electric scooters? Is really important because you can't store them in the same way as you would store a bike. Equally, I think I I actually don't think there'll be as big a transformative change in the way people use offices as a result of COVID as perhaps others feel at the moment. I think actually, after all this, people will be quite keen to go back, and the last thing anybody will want to do is go and house party or zoom or whatever if they can avoid <laughs> it but that uh, I do think what there will be is mo- a more prevalent culture of working from home you know you, you won't Shop. stop going into the office but you won't go in as often which means you need uh, proper office space to be able to work in in any new home so all of that sort of makes spatial demands on on new buildings as well and new flats and means that you have to try and um, design that in, design an element of privacy and acoustics and performance into those buildings, which enables people to comfortably work more from home. So I suppose the two things for me would be would be that that privacy um, to be able to work properly from home.
0: Mm, that makes sense. Just to go back to the issue of sustainability, what kinds of things, if you're buying a new home now, what sorts of questions should you be asking about sustainability? What things should you be looking for to invest in? I
2: think, as as Mark said earlier, you know, it's all about the infrastructure of the building. You know, what is it made out of? What is the U values of your windows? What are the insulation values of the building itself? Because lots of other stuff can change, and there might be new systems which come in in the future which are good at handling air or whatever it might be. But, you know, how well it's built, it's fire stopping, it's insulation, it's windows. They're they they are are the absolutely crucial things. Um, floor build-ups, all of those things are absolutely paramount to check. After that, then there's essentially a suite of technologies which are then applied to the building and they change over time. It might be ventilation, it might be air source heat pumps, it might be solar panels or whatever. And they're important, obviously, and and they may be particularly important to you if you use your home in a certain way. You know, if you haven't got a huge electricity load or your electricity load is more towards the beginning or end of the day, then maybe solar power isn't quite you know, as applicable to you as it might be to others, for example. You know, family energy loads are different from non-family energy loads. So um, there's a whole world of detail you can go into then about exactly what is in the building that would suit you and the way you, you want to live. But I think the thing that I would check first and foremost is, is this building put together properly? Has it been thought about in terms of design, you know, size of windows, aspect of building, access to natural light? floor buildups, wall buildups, is it insulated properly? After that, you know, you can you can fix it over time if you need to. But um they'd be the primary things.
0: And then it's more about the bespoke nature of it then as well, presumably for you and your family or whoever you're living with.
2: Yeah, and your ability to apply different technologies to it. If it's big enough, then you can do stuff to it, basically. It's it's pretty simple. It's what people have been doing for years. Technologies will change, but you'll never build that building again or you'll never build that house again. So, you know, primary for me will be making sure it's been built properly in the first place.
0: So, Mark, coming on to that issue, what if you aren't buying a new house? What if you're inheriting a really old house and you've got to retrofit? What can you do around sustainability that's straightforward and what are the problems going to be?
1: Well, I mean, you start in the sort of easy, you know, and actually you can go through the list that Com's just gone through and start looking at each of those individually. I think that a great point that Tom made was about the embedded carbon that you have already in an existing property and how significant that is. So, you know, you've got to think about your investment in the building sort of in the light of. Uh, the long-term potential of the property. So uh, natural light and natural ventilation, it's nice to allow the light to come in through those windows so uh, so you get that light and shade that Colm was talking about earlier as the weather changes, as the time of day passes. That, that remains really important. So insulation levels, you know, yeah. further than that, I think we also have to look at the outside of buildings and start thinking about... Does this building deserve to be clad to get it to another level of, of thermal insulation through the main structure of the property? And I think you know, we're going to go away from some of the, 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 the central heating systems that we've been working with for what seems like forever but isn't um, into you know, more efficient
2: point of use heat systems within rooms, pumping hot water around
1: pipes under the floor, heating voids that don't need heating, You know, with new technologies coming through, that can't be the right and most efficient way to do that anymore. I'd also very much urge people to think about not just thermal insulation, but noise insulation. You know, it's a it's a qualitative thing, but in terms of having a pleasant life, if you're constantly hearing the people upstairs who might be your family moving around and enjoying themselves, um, you're trying to enjoy yourselves wherever you are. That's an important thing to think about and try to build in. And then efficiency generally, you know, sustainability of of how how your property consumes energy and consumes water is really important. So grey water is basically the water that comes out of your shower, for instance, which rarely is that really dirty. Uh, Mm -hmm. And now there are technologies being developed which are relatively widely available. Uh, and will continue to become more available, allow you to use that so you can flush your loo with the shower water. There's a storage issue there that needs the design work to be done up front. And of course, that's all very different depending on whether you're, you're living in a, an apartment where you may have very limited space, very limited ability to get around the outside of your property to make those modifications versus a more detached property or a building where you've got access to front and back. And you have to bear all of that in mind when you're thinking about it.
0: Yeah, because it's just crazy how much clean water we waste, really, isn't it, when we think about it? I think that's a yeah. really, really good point about the grey water.
1: Yeah, and, you know, okay, water is cheap in, in the UK at the moment, which is why we don't really care about it. It's going to get more expensive, you know, especially in cities where, you know, we're already, you know, the, the famous stats about consuming water that's always been already been through someone else's body a number of times. It's going to get worse. So the density in cities means that fresh water is going to get more and more and more expensive. So we should be using it in a very respectful way. And we can use technology to help us with that. I think I'd finish that comment by saying it's very complex. And if you talk to the average the average person and start to talk about sustainability, start to talk about assessing property for its performance. It's a whole new language. We definitely need to have an education program in place to help people understand more.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I certainly had heard of very little of this before I started researching this episode of the podcast and talking to yeah. you two. I just wanted to touch on age proofing because you mentioned it, Colm, a little bit earlier about aging at home and there are lots of things that aren't certain about the future, but one of them is that we're going to get old, isn't it? So what kinds of things, I think lots of people will be familiar with things like um, having a downstairs bathroom if possible and having maybe space, uh, you know, rooms wide enough for a wheelchair to pass through and limiting steps. But what other kinds of things do people forget about when it comes to age proofing?
2: I think one of the biggest ones is probably acoustic proofing, um, which which Mark touched on earlier. You know, one of the reasons older people don't want to give up their large family home with their big garden and move into an apartment is because they think it's going to be noisy or there's going to be parties or people doing things that they don't want to do and they're going to be interrupted. So I think making sure that buildings are able to be quiet and soundproofed properly and people can live in different parts of them and do whatever they want without impacting on, on other people is really important. I think of older people who are interested in buying a brick by brick property one of the things that they want most is access to external space and it's okay actually if that's a balcony you would expect that you know older people purchasing would want to purchase a home with a garden but that's not necessarily the case they just want somewhere where they can experience fresh air but also where they can do some growing and have some flowers or some vegetable growing or whatever it is that they they might want to do. And then I think the third key area is areas for interaction. So this is obviously helps to address things like social isolation. But I I think one of the things that we can be absolutely sure of is that councils are not going to have as much money to spend on social care in the future. You know, we, we aren't going to be able to afford to look after our older population in the way that we do currently. So people are going to need to look after themselves more, or or look after themselves at home, or look after each other more. So, you know, having these spaces within apartment buildings where people can interact, and and I don't necessarily mean you know a, a common room or a, you know, some of the more high end private rented schemes would have gyms or cafes or wherever where people come and, you know, it's a prescribed place where people interact. I'm just talking about nice lobbies or design where people. Have to walk past each other's door in order to be able to get to their own property you know in brick by brick we use a lot of deck access buildings still where you walk along an external space past someone's door in order to get to your own and sometimes you might meet them and you say hello and you move on and that the impact of that on people's mental health is is huge and um if we're not going to be able to look after our older people in sort of defined care homes or similar then we should be designing spaces where, you know, the the incidental care of people just by seeing them or saying hello to them is is made much easier. So I think that's a big challenge for for design going forward.
0: And something that we don't think about either. We're always thinking about the internals, aren't we, and not about the experience of living somewhere when we're older. Mark, did you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of the sort of mobility things, and you know, I think. Visual acuity is another thing that needs a bit of care and attention. You know, you, you, you need good ability to illuminate space. You know, having transitions and changes in floor surfaces where they're, they're semi-invisible is a real hazard. Uh, I've, I've got a real bugbear again around, uh, you know, very bad bathroom design that doesn't allow less mobile people to to move safely around the space. It's just poor design, honestly, Um, and there's no real excuse. You know, we've all been to that hotel room that we walk in and we're like, oh, God, I've got the disabled room. Well, it's not. It's an inclusive bathroom, inclusive room, but it looks and feels like you're a second-class citizen. And that's got to stop, and that's about careful design up front so that you create a beautiful environment where it just happens to have handholds that your hand naturally falls to as you transition through spaces and they can be totally invisible really apart from the fact that you you know your hand falls on it when you need it i think that's the uh, the attitude that we need to adopt now i think uh you know setting the highest standard in in design and interiors and architecture for for expectations around that is is something that we need to really push going forward
0: Hmm. So I think that's absolutely true. And I think accessibility, finally, we're having a much better discussion about it for people at every stage of their life, aren't we? So hopefully that's something that is going to start to shift. So finally, I just wanted to ask you both, if there's only one thing you recommend somebody focus on, say they've got no idea where to start with future proofing, even if they've listened to this podcast, and they say, I don't know what to start with first. What's the one thing, column that you say is really important to deal with? Space don't, space. don't okay. buy
2: something that's too small you right. know that that is is will basically be the key thing you can change things over time your life will change whatever you think is important to you now will not be important as important in 10 15 years time buy space don't buy a home and you can change it over time
0: that's a good one mark what about you
1: there's nothing worse than living in a, a place where you don't have good access to natural light you don't see the passage of time <laughs> And then when you're in the home in the evening, you know, you just, it's a a glary, horrible mess. So, you know, light in all its forms and and, and shapes and colours.
0: So, if you want to start future-proofing but don't know your Google Nest from your grey water, do think carefully about how much you're being influenced by fashion. Keep the structure of your home classic and leave expressing your style to things like paint, furniture and decorative objects. Do think carefully about the placement of the Wi-Fi router and other smart home tech. If there's a power cut, you don't want to be left high and dry. Don't forget the storage. You don't know when you'll need to be housing a bike, a pram or a mobility scooter along with yourself. Don't forget the acoustic proofing. This is actually key to a comfortable home when you're elderly. And finally, if you're moving into a new home, whether brand new or centuries old, make sure you know how to use its smart features before the keys are yours and yours alone. Still not taking the Resi Happy Homes test? Well, there's still time, so get yourself over to resi.co.uk happy underscore homes and find out today if your home can make you that little bit happier. Bye for now.